This is Daf Chet in Masechet Pesachim. We're going to begin at the last line of Daf Zayin Amud Bet. Tanur Rabbanan, the rabbi is taught in Bodekin, lo le'or chamav, lo le'or levana, v'lo le'or avuka. We cannot search for chametz by the light of the sun, nor by the light of the moon, nor by the light of a torch, ala le'or aner, but only by the light of a candle. But nisha or aner, yafeh lebdika, because the light of a candle is perfect, is ideal for checking for things. V'afal pish, enu ha'ya ledavar, and even though there is no proof for this matter, there's a, uh, there is a hint to this matter in verses that are linked to one another that were actually mentioned on Daf Zayin Amud Bet. It says for seven days, Seor, which is actually uh, a type of uh, leavened um, substance. It's not actually yeast, but it's, some people mistranslate it as that. So is a type of a uh, starter dough. And it says, It says, They searched. And the rest of the pasuk that's not written here is, It's talking about how they searched for the cup of Yosef in the bags of the brothers. And the word uh, that it was found, is connected to the word, that or leaven should not be found in your houses for seven days, and it says that they searched and they and they found the cup. So searching and finding are connected. And it says at that time a Yerushalayim banerot that will search Jerusalem with candles. So we see that searching is done with candles. And it also says that the uh, that the soul of a person is the candle of Hashem, uh, and he searches out all of the uh, depths of the innards of a person. In other words, it's using the word ner, one candle connected with chofes, with searching. So we have finding is connected with searching, searching is connected with candles, candles ultimately are connected with one candle, so that's why we use one candle. Now what is the case in which we would be searching by the light of the sun. If you're talking about in a courtyard and the person is searching during the day because they couldn't do it at night, Rava said that we don't have to check an out, outdoors courtyard for chametim because there are all kinds of ravens there that eat any bread that is left. We're talking about achsadra. Achsadra is a kind of a structure that's open on the sides but has a cover on the top. It's usually with pillars. There also Rava said that uh, such a structure can be checked uh, by the light of the you know the outdoors. You don't need to uh, you don't need to use a candle. So we're talking about a room that has a skylight and the person is checking during the daytime because for whatever reason he couldn't check at night. So he's checking by the light of the skylight. So it says, so it says, where in the room is he checking? If he's right underneath that skylight, so that's the same thing as being outside and checking in the structure outside. It's by the sides of the room. In other words, the idea is that since he's checking by the sides of the room, he cannot use the sunlight that comes in from the skylight above because he's not directly under it. We can't use a torch. What is the meaning of the pasuk? This is a pasuk that speaks in one way or another about the reward of the tzaddikim from Hashem. She explains, the light of the future that's given to the righteous, it will be like the light of the seven days of creation, this is Rashi, and Karnaim, it talks about the, the uh, beams, from his hand, so it says, from the same language as, 
the shining of the face of Moshe Rabbeinu. The, the glory uh, and the splendor of Hashem will be tr- given to the tzaddik like a shining light. And this shining light will will make the faces of the righteous glow. It won't be the same as the light of Hashem, but it will be like a candle compared to a torch. That's what Rava said. Right? So it says the tzaddikim are similar standing before the divine presence. They're like a candle in front of a torch. In other words, a torch shines a tremendous amount of light, a candle only a little bit of light, and so when it says that the light that Hashem is going to shine, Venoga what Hashem transfers to the tzaddikim, Veshem but the ultimate strength is is hidden with Hashem. The great light is is only a, a reflection of the light of the divine presence. It's not as it's not equal to the light of the divine presence. Um, and so the uh, Rav said that's the that the tzaddikim are only like a candle in front of a. Uh, in front of a uh, uh, in front of a torch. That's why it says keor, that it's going to be like the light, but not the light itself. So that would seem to imply that a torch is better than a candle. Moreover, Rava said that using a torch for havdalah is the best way to do it. So you see that a torch is good. The difference is that with a candle, see here we're not talking about what provides more light necessarily, but what can have the light focused. You cannot put a torch into the nooks and crannies and little holes and crevices that you need to enter into to search for chametz. A torch will burn down your house. So you can't do that, but you can do that with a little candle. So that's why a candle is better for Bdika. Not necessarily because the torch is less bright than a candle. Obviously, a, a torch is more, uh, you know, is brighter than a candle because we see that the light that's shown from Hashem, so to speak, is much greater than that which the, uh, that which the tzaddikim receive. So we see that the torch and the candle, the candle is less, but the candle is more uh, is has more utility when it comes to searching. The difference is that a candle shines its light forward. A torch casts its light backwards towards the person holding it. And so therefore it won't be as good for searching. One is scary and one is not scary. In other words, a person watching walking around with a torch in the house is going to be afraid to catch the house on fire and therefore he's not going to use one want to do as careful of a search as opposed to the person holding a candle. The difference is that the candle's light is constant, whereas the, um, the, the light of the torch is, is jumpy, so to speak. In other words, it's always, uh, it flickers all the time, is the word I guess we would use in English. So it's not as clear, of a, it's not as, as consistent of a light for searching. So the point here is that there are different reasons why a torch is not good. It's not because of a quantitative difference between a candle and a torch. Quantitatively, clearly, the torch has more light, but it is in some other aspect of the torch that is problematic for searching, either that the light can't be focused in small areas, or that the way the light shines, it's backwards instead of forwards, or the fact that the person will be afraid to use it, or the fact that the light is not consistent. It said that any place that we don't bring chametz, we don't have to check for chametz. So, what does it include? It comes to include the following teaching of the rabbis. Holes in the wall of the house, upper and lower. The yatziah is a structure which is low, but it's t- it's um, the roof is 
slanted, so therefore it's not something where you would place any items such as food and so on on top of it. So you don't have to check up there because it's not a place that things can rest. Vagaga migdal, also the roof of a migdal. Migdal here seems to be like a type of a uh, closet or a, uh, a type of a structure that you put things inside. You have to ch- check inside, but you don't have to check on top because that's not a place where people would normally put any items. So you don't have to check there. Also the uh, the um, the uh, stable of the animals, Vilulin, and also the uh, chicken coops, and also Umatben, the place where you store the straw, the place where you store wines, the place where you store oil, and all of these places do not require checking, either because they're not places where you normally store things, or they're not places where you normally go in with chametz. If you have a, uh, a um, bed that goes... It is in the middle of a house and divides the house into two. Now, really, when they say house, they mean room a lot of times. So it means it divides the room into two, goes across the room. You don't have to check it. Now, we're going to see what exactly it means. So you don't have to check it in a second. But oh, minute, we raise an objection to that. It says that uh, in another Brita, that if there's a hole between, let's say they have two apartments next to each other and they share a wall and there's a hole in the wall between one apartment and the next, says one should reach in as far as his hand can reach and the, the tenant next door should reach as far as his hand can reach into the hole and, and the rest of it, they just do bitul, they just nullify it verbally, but they, even though they, because they can't reach any further. So obviously whatever, as far as I can reach my hand into the hole on my side of the wall is the area that is utilized by me. However far you can reach your hand into the hole is however as much of it is utilized by you. And whatever is in the middle that we each can't reach, it doesn't matter. Rabban Shemav Gamliel talks again about the, the bed that goes from one side of the room to the other. And there are, uh, there's wood and rocks underneath. And it's separating between the two halves of the room slash house. You don't have to check it. So, first of all, the cases of the bed are contradictory because it, before he said that you do need to check under the bed and here he says you don't. And Right. And similarly, that the case of the holes is contradictory because before we said that the holes of the house and the wall do not have to be checked for chametz. And now we're saying that if there's a hole between two apartments, you do have to check. So the answer is rather simple because the Brighta said above that the upper holes, in other words, holes that are very high up or very low down, you don't have to check for chametz. But the ones in the middle, you do. And this is obviously talking about ones in the middle since they are at, let's say, uh, you know, the level of the person where they can be used easily, easy access, so they are used for storage. Similarly, there is no machloket, really, between the two baritot about the bed, but one is talking about where it's a very high bed. So it's a very high bed, there's a lot of space underneath and you have to check under it. One is a low bed and since there's other stuff under it, so therefore there's no space actually for food or anything else so you don't have to check there. Is it really true that storehouses of wine do not require checking for chametz? We learned that they do. We only said that that places where we store oil don't require checking for chametz, but places where we store wine do. So We're talking about a type of wine cellar where a person takes from it in the middle of the meal. So since he takes it from it in the middle of the meal, he might go there with chametz. If it's a wine cellar that he never would go to in the middle of a meal, so then uh, he wouldn't have to worry. If that's true, what about oil? Should also say the same thing. The Gemara answers 
that what, with oil, a person takes a certain amount of oil for the meal, he plans ahead, and he brings only what he needs. He doesn't go in the middle of the meal to get more oil. However, wine, you never know how much you're going to drink. There's no fixed amount of time or fixed amount that you drink. So a person will decide to bring more wine to the table. He's going to go and bring more wine. And so therefore, he might go with a piece of bread in his hand, leave, drop the piece of bread there, and there'll be chametz there, and that's why you have to check in a wine cellar that you take from in the middle of the meal. Rabbi Chia said that they made the storehouse of beer in Bavel, right? So they said that, that, uh, they, that if the, um, that they treated the beer sellers like the wine sellers of, um, of Israel. Because in Bavel, it was more common to drink beer in the middle of the meal, and that's been Mr. Pick. Again, that if a person will typically go into this beer cellar to take beer in the middle of the meal to replenish the supply or increase the supply, so then he would have to be worried that maybe he also left chametz there. Now, we're obviously not talking about where the beer itself is chametz. We're talking about maybe a date beer or something like that. The place where the fish are kept, you don't have to check it for chametz. But then we learn actually that you do have to check. Depends again. If it's large fish, you don't go and get more large fish in the middle of a meal carrying a piece of bread. Right? She says, because the person's going to have a fixed amount that he plans in advance. But small fish like sardines or whatever, so that the person might go to add to the meal in the middle. And therefore, you would have, if you had a place where you stored those, you would have to check it for chametz because maybe you went in with bread in your hand in the middle of the meal to get more. The place where you keep the salt, the place where you keep the wax, they need to be checked. Because again, these are places that a person might get up to get more wax for the candles. He might get up to get more salt for the meal in the middle of the meal carrying his bread. The place where the person keeps tzive, keeps wood, or where he keeps um, dates, again, he would have to uh, check it for chametz because there's a possibility that um, he'll need to replenish his supply of wood maybe for the fireplace or for whatever uh, in the middle of the meal and similarly with uh, dates. Tana, we learned, the rabbis taught. We learned, in a, we learned that we are not required to stick our hand into the holes and the nooks and crannies of the wall to check for chametz because of sakana, because of danger. So the question is, what kind of danger? Right? So my sakana, if you're telling me that he's worried that there might be a scorpion in the hole, then how can he even use that hole for storage? And of course, we're only talking about holes that would be used for storage. So it says, no, 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 that's we're talking about where the wall fell. Now he shouldn't stick his hand in because now there might be a scorpion in there. When it was standing, he didn't worry about that. But if the wall fell, why is he checking it at all? If, the, if there's a ruin that collapses, basically a wall collapses or a house collapses on Chametz, it's like it's already destroyed. You don't have to do anything with it. So why would he have to stick his hand in there to try to find the Chametz if the wall fell? So the answer is, that uh, that uh, if it's so deeply buried that a dog wouldn't be able to extract it from there, that which the Rashi says if it's three tvachim underneath, so then he doesn't have to go looking for it. But but if it is within three tvachim of the top, then you would have to go and search for it. In other words, if there's if the area that was once the hole in the wall is now only is now only a tefach deep under the rubble, you have to check. So maybe that's what it's talking about. And the guy goes to look there and he's afraid that, and, and he shouldn't check there, the rabbis are saying, because maybe even though really it might be accessible to him because it's only a tevach or two under the rubble, uh, he has to be worried that maybe a, uh, uh, maybe there will be a, um, a scorpion that will, will attack him. 
So What about the general principle that shluchei mitzvah, a person involved in a mitzvah, they don't get harmed. So why should he have to worry that he's going to be harmed by a scorpion if he's doing a mitzvah? But what the problem is that maybe he'll lose something else in the rubble. In other words, the wall collapsed. So maybe in addition to looking for chametz, he's also looking for his watch. He's also looking for his needle. It says machat. And, and so he's looking for something else um, in the course of looking for the chametz. And it's not purely a mitzvah. So therefore he might be stung. He's not going to be protected. Are you telling me that that's not a mitzvah? That because he's looking both for chametz and also for his needle, it's not considered a mitzvah? We learn that if a person says, this coin is for tzedakah so that my son will live, or so that I'll make it into the world to come, into olam haba, that's harayzeh tzadikamur. This person who says this is a complete tzaddik. And Rashi says, it doesn't mean he's a tzaddik, a perfect tzaddik in everything. We can't say that. But we would say that this mitzvah is 100% considered for the proper. Rashi says, we don't say that the person is doing it with the wrong intention. Rather, he fulfilled the mitzvah of his creator. It's okay that in addition to fulfilling the mitzvah of his creator, he also wants to benefit himself, either that his child will live or that he will make it to the next world and that's perfectly okay. So, so to hear, just because he's also looking for a needle while he's looking for chametz doesn't take away the mitzvah. So it says, Dilma, So the question was, so why should we be worried about a scorpion stinging him? If this, so what that he's looking both for chametz and also for a needle? That shouldn't be an issue because he's still doing a mitzvah so he should be protected. But the answer is maybe once he's already done looking for chametz, he continues on looking for the needle and for that he's not protected. He's already done with the mitzvah. Then he would be vulnerable to the danger of the scorpion. Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak Amar Mishum Sakadnat Hanochrim. The real concern here is not because of the uh, is not because of the scorpion, and we don't have to worry. Uh, but we're not talking necessarily about the wolf falling and him searching for a needle after he's done searching for the chametz. We're talking about the danger of the Gentiles. Oplimohi, and it is plimo. The Tanya we learned thereby. Before we had talked about two Jews that live next to each other and have a wall that they share, and we said that the Jew should reach his hand in on one side. Um, a person A, Jew A, should reach his hand into the hole as far as he can reach, and Jew B should reach his hand in as far as he can reach, and they should each take care of the area of the hole that's accessible to them. But let's say your neighbor on the other side of the wall is a non-Jew, so only you are going to be checking. He's not going to be checking his half because he's not observing Pesach, but he's going to see you doing some weird thing on your side of the hole in the wall. So the, the Chachamim, the Tanakhama says, no problem, still you should do it. But Plimo Amar, Kol Bodek Kana. Plimo says, don't do it. Don't search your side of the hole, the hole that you share with the non-Jew, even though you could reach to the extent that, uh, you know, your hand reaches, but don't do it because of danger. So my sakana, what's the danger? If you're worried about some kind of a, that he's going to cast a spell on you, some kind of chafim, some kind of a uh, supernatural concern. So uh, if that's the case, then how can you even use the hole if you're worried about that? Maybe he can cast a spell on you anytime. So the uh, so the answer is no. Hatam ki ishtamesh yemama onora velo masika date. See when the Jew normally uses the hole, okay? He's not um, the uh, he he's not go. See the concern is that when the person the when the that the non Jew will think that you're doing some hocus pocus on him, okay? So when the so the the Gemara asked. 
how, how can you use the hole at all if the non-Jew is going to think you're doing some kind of hocus pocus and he's going to retaliate against you? Right? So, well, during the day, when it's light, he's not going to care that you're using the hole. But when you're peeking around in that hole with a candle, you know you're just doing a religious obligation, but he's going to think you're doing some hocus pocus and he's going to get upset and he might kill you because he thinks you're casting some Jewish spell on him. So therefore, you shouldn't... Uh, you shouldn't search your side of the hole if you share it with a non-Jew. What about the fact that we said before, Rabbi Elazar said that people who are doing a mitzvah are not hurt. They're not going to be harmed. And if they're not going to be harmed, then uh, you shouldn't have to worry about the non-Jew retaliating against you. But the fact is that whenever danger is prevalent and commonplace, that's a different story. You can't put yourself in actual danger where it's expected that it's a dangerous situation. This is a very famous, famous story that the Gemara always uses to show that you have to be practical and realistic when it comes to doing mitzvot. Shmuel was sent to anoint David Melech as the king to replace Shaul. Shmuel had the reasonable objection that if Shaul hears that I'm going, to anoint the new king in his place, he's going to be very angry and he's going to kill me, even though he might respect me, but he'll kill me because basically he'll see it as treason. And what does Hashem say? He doesn't say, don't worry about it, you're doing a mitzvah, you'll be okay. He says, take with yourself an animal that you're going to bring as a korban and say that you're bringing it to, to bring, you're carrying it to the, to Beit Lechem to bring a korban. And he won't suspect you. In other words, you're, because it's such a realistic possibility that you could come to danger, therefore, um, and you have to protect yourself against it, and you can't just assume that because you're doing a mitzvah, you're going to be okay. But minei meirav hanei banei beirav the direbe baga mau lemeitek kadma vachashocha leberav. So they asked Rav these uh, yeshiva students, okay, who live in the villages that are in the valley, and they are uh, coming to learn. What's the story with them getting up early in the morning while it's still dark? And uh, going back when it is uh, dark at night, should they be afraid of mazikin, of being harmed by demons? Or uh, the Rambam says in the Moran of Uchim that demons can also just mean, you know, uh, bad people. In other words, should we be worried about them walking home at night to uninhabited areas? So Amal always said to them, let it go on my neck and on me. Meaning, uh, Rashi says, Yehei Onesh Hezekan. May their punishment, if they get hurt, go on me. Because they definitely won't be hurt. Because the mitzvah is going to protect them uh, from go because they're going to learn in the morning. So even though it's dark, they're going to be safe. But the question is, that's very good for going to learn. Nezelmai. What about going home? Amalahulo yadana. I said, I don't know. I don't know about that. Okay, to go home in the dark, that return home is not really a mitzvah. It's, but can you rely on the fact that they went to the Beit Midrash to do a mitzvah initially, that they're allowed to return home? Maybe not. Idmar was stated, Rabbi Lazar said that people who are doing a mitzvah won't be harmed, not on the way there, not on the way back. And in, in, in accordance with whom is this? This Tana. Like Isi Ben Yehuda said, because the Torah says nobody will desire your land. He says that that means that, in other words, the Torah tells you 
והדרשי says מתוך שאמרה תורה, כך אנו למדים שהבטיחו הכתוב שלא יוזק ממונו וקושקין גופו. The Torah says that when the Jewish people go up to Aliyah Laregel, they leave their homes and they leave their fields and leave everything and they go to make a pilgrimage to Yerushalayim. Nobody is going to come and try to take the land from them. So if that's true, that all of that is protected, then definitely the person will also be protected. In other words, you see that a person's property will be protected. Nobody's going to come and, and, and try to seize their property when they're making Aliyah Laregel. Similarly, they'll be able to leave their cow grazing and they'll be able to leave their, and, and no wild animal is going to bother it and their chicken is going to be able to pick around in the in, in the in the heaps of garbage of and and the weasel will not bother it because if these animals that the person's leaving unattended won't be harmed even though it's natural for them to be harmed because they're vulnerable to predators and things like that so certainly human beings that are not normally uh, not normally har- uh, uh, easily harmed, as Rashi says here. A person has mazal and he's not usually harmed in his body. Now, the Rashi actually explains in Masachet Bavakam in the beginning that what does it mean that a person has mazal as opposed to an animal? Um, it means that he has in- intelligence, and therefore a person guards himself from harm more effectively uh, with more forethought. Than an animal would. So the point is that since a person's harder to harm than an animal because a person has intelligence, and which is called mazal here, as she says. <clears throat> so therefore, certainly, if the Torah tells you that your land and your animals and so on will be protected when you go up to do the mitzvah aliyah regel, certainly a person will be protected as well. Okay. So in uh, that only tells me on the way to aliyah regel. But how do we know that even coming on the way back? From making the pilgrimage to Yerushalayim, you won't be harmed. Talmud lomar, ufanita bavoke v'alachta lo alecha, melamed shetelech v'timtao alecha v'shalom. It says you will get up in the morning and go back to your tent, meaning to your home, which teaches that you're going to go home and find everything in your house. Fine, everything in your house is going to be good. It's going to be b'shalom, it's going to be perfect. Now, if it's true that the Torah already tells you that when you get home, everything is going to be fine, on your way home, everything's going to be fine, even though you're no longer doing the mitzvah, but you're returning from the mitzvah, so then why does it have to even tell you that on the way to the mitzvah, you're going to be okay? Because if on the way back, when you're already done with the mitzvah, you're going to be okay, and you're going to be protected and safe, certainly on the way there. So the answer is, You're right. That pasuk is not coming just, is not really coming to tell you that you're going to be safe from harm on the way to Ali al because that's obvious, because since we already know that on the way back, even on the way back from the pilgrimage to Yerushalayim, everything that you have is going to be safe and you're going to be safe. So certainly on your way to the mitzvah, you're going to be safe. So, but the reason why it has to mention that when you go up for Ali al Nobody's going to be desirous of your land and try to seize it or of your property and try to seize it is to tell you that only a person who has land has the mitzvah of making aliyah l'regel. Now, interestingly, this is not actually codified by the Rambam or other poskim, but this is the halachav Rabbi Ami. Why didn't Hashem see fit to make the perot ginosar, which were these delicious fruits, exceptionally delicious fruits that are talked about other, elsewhere in the Gemara? Why didn't they make these fruits in Yerushalayim? Why didn't Hashem put them in Yerushalayim? Why? Because that would have been really nice for everybody to enjoy those. So that people would not say, you know what, if we had only come to Jerusalem just to eat these delicious fruits, it would have been enough. So then it would be like they were making the Aliyah regel not for the right reasons. In other words, they would see it as an opportunity to partake of the good fruits, tasty fruits, instead of an opportunity to serve Hashem, and therefore Hashem didn't want to give this ulterior, ulterior motive to them. Okay. So, similarly, Rabbi Dustai 
the son of Rabbi Anai said, in Yerushalayim. Why didn't Hashem see fit to put the hot springs of Tiberia in Yerushalayim? They're so beautiful, they're so nice. Because, because otherwise people would say, if, if we had only come to Yerushalayim just to go in this beautiful uh, bathhouse, then have a beautiful bath in the, um, in the hot springs, it would be enough. Meaning they would say, we, we enjoy going for that reason. So, it would be like they're not going up to Yerushalayim to serve Hashem, they're going up for the enjoyment, the physical enjoyment that they obtain um, and that they derive from the experience. So therefore, Hashem did not want to make it a place that offered especially enjoyable physical luxuries. When did they say two rows of the uh, cellar, of the wine cellar, have to be checked for Hamed? So, Amar... So the question is like this. Martef, If you look in the Mishnah, all of a sudden it starts talking about a martef. It starts talking about a wine cellar. Who was talking about a wine cellar? Didn't say anything about that in the Mishnah. All of a sudden it says, and in what case did they say that the wine cellar has to be checked? Who said a wine cellar? Hachikam, this is what it means. The beginning of the Mishnah said that any place that you don't bring chametz in doesn't require checking. And you know what? The truth is that places where you, where you keep wine and oil also shouldn't need any checking. So in what case did they say that you have to check two rows of the, uh, of the uh, wine cellar a play, and, and that they considered it a place that you bring in chametz? But Mr. Peck, we're talking about a wine cellar that you bring in chametz because you take food, you take wine from it in the middle of um, in the middle of your meal. So in other words, Rashi says the way that you would read it would be like this. When, in, under what circumstances do they say that it needs to be checked? In a situation where people bring chametz into that wine cellar and uh, because they take from it in the middle of their meals, that's when you would have to check it. That's what Bechamai said, that two rows along the entire face of the cellar and Beit Hillel had what sounded like a uh, lesser uh, measure. The two outer, which are the top. Now, that's very vague. What does it mean, two rows on the face of the entire wine cellar? Now, we have to understand that the way that these um, barrels of wine were stacked was from ceiling to floor and across. In other words, they were, they were stacked um, from floor to ceiling and from wall to wall. So what, imagine that you basically have a cube where you have um, wine barrels, let's say uh, column A from ceiling to floor. Column A1 would be from ceiling to floor. To the right of it would be column B from ceiling to floor or from floor to ceiling. Column C from floor to ceiling. Column D from floor to ceiling. And you're going from left to right across. Okay, these are barrels stacked on top of each other. Now, if you go past Column A1, you have right behind it column A2. And right behind column B1 is column B2. And right behind column C1 is column C2. And so on. And then behind column B2 would be column B, uh, B3. And behind column A1 would be column... I'm, I'm sorry, behind column A2 would be column A3. In other words, if you go along, um, you, you create a cube that way, going from left to right all the way across, from floor to ceiling... And then you do it again behind that um, set of barrels. You do it again. And then you do it again. So you'll have A1, B1, C1, D1, E1, F1. And then you'll have A2, B2, C2, D2, E2, E2 F2. And the same thing with 
a third and a fourth and a fifth, and so on. So what did he mean when he said al Nikola Martif? Uh, that, that when Beit Shammai said uh, the entire face of the seller. He said that, that what they meant was from the ground to the ceiling. In other words, when you walk into the cellar, you see the stacks of wine barrels. So from A1 all the way across, all the way up to the whatever is stacked on top of it, that column that reaches from floor to ceiling, okay, and everything that is similarly one, in other words, B1 from floor to ceiling and C1 from floor to ceiling, that entire thing is called Al Pnei Martef. And then after that, you have to do A2, B2, C2, 3, 2. In other words, the second one as well. That's called two shuot Al Pnei Martef. Two rows along the entire cellar, meaning the row that you immediately see in front of you a1 from floor to ceiling, st- a stack of um, barrels all the way across to, let's say, Z1. And then A2 all the way across from floor to ceiling. And similarly, all the way to Z2. Those two rows from floor to ceiling. But Rabbi Yochanan says, that, says differently. He says, Rabbi Yochanan amar shuachat kemingam. You don't do two uh, rows from floor to ceiling. You do the first row from floor to ceiling. By first row, I mean all the way from A to Z, meaning all the way across from left to right and from floor to ceiling, that entire layer of, uh, uh, of uh, barrels. And then you do the horizontal layer on top. So you would make almost like an upside down L shape. We would, we would view it as you go all the way up and then all the way back. So you would go the entire horizontal top surface of these stacks of barrels, as well as the front vertical surface that you see, the first outer vertical surface that you see. Um, and that's the shape of an L, or it says Kimingam, which is a, uh, which is a uh, Greek letter. And they're bright taught to support both these interpretations of, of Beit Shammai. What does it mean, two rows along the face of the entire cellar? These two uh, rows mean from the ground until the ceiling. So the, from the ground to the ceiling, A across to Z, and then from the ground to the ceiling again, a2 across to Z2. Right? So what does it mean? Two rows on the entire face of the cellar, the wine cellar. So according to Rabbi Yochanan, this is Rabbi Yochanan's view re- reflected in this Braita that it says that the outer one that faces the door. The top one faces the ceiling. Right? And but the one inside or under it do not require. So according to this interpretation, this is Rabbi Yochanan's interpretation of Beit Shammai, that it means the um, vertical outer surface that faces, the entire vertical outer surface, first layer of barrels that are stacked when you, when you look at it from the door, and the horizontal um, top layer of barrels going across uh, all the way back in the cube, that would be the what sees the ceiling, so to speak, because all the barrels that see the ceiling are the top, all the top barrels of all of the rows that there are would be the, the top. And then the first set of columns that you see um, that are from floor to ceiling. But that's Beit Shammai's interpretation. Amrav. So now we get to Beit Hillel. What does it mean the two rows that are outer and that are up? Amrav. Amrav. 
The question is, how can they be uh, outer and also upper? Right? So, the, so according to Rav, what it means is the very top. So if we're using our metaphor again, we're using our example again, that the, ro- the outer column is A, right? The, 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 all, to your left is A, and to your, all the way to your right is Z. And column A goes all the way from floor to ceiling. And column B goes all the way to floor to ceiling. And then behind that, of course, you have A2 from floor to ceiling. And behind B, you have B2 from floor to ceiling, and so on. So they're talking about, Rav is talking about, um, that you go across. In other words, the very top barrel of column A, the very top barrel of column B, the very top barrel of column C, and so on. And then the second to top, the second to top of column A, and the second to the top of column B, and the second to the top of column C, going all the way across. That would be your Shemuel Shmuel Amar Shmuel says, no, it's the top, meaning the very top barrel of column A, and the very top barrel of column B, and the very top barrel of column C, and the very top barrel of column D, going all the way to the end. And then, the one that's further inside, meaning the very top barrel of column A2, and the very top barrel of column B2, and the very top barrel of column C2, and so on till the end. So according to Rav, you only look, according to Beit Hillel, at bar- in between the barrels that are on the outermost columns, Okay, the top one and the one right underneath it, going all the way across from A to Z, the top barrel, and from A to Z, the second from the top. According to Shmuel, you go all the way across in the first set of uh, columns, from A to Z, just the top barrel, and then from A2 to Z2, all the way across, just the top barrel. That's what Shmuel says. Now, so my Rav, where does Rav get his interpretation? Because it says it has to be the outer column. So that means it can't be the one that's further in. It can't be anything having to do with column A2 through Z2. It can't be those columns because that's not that's not chitzonot. Those are not the outer ones that you see when you walk in. But it doesn't say it has to be the top ones. Okay, That means that you don't go any lower than the second from the top. But you can't go further in, because further in wouldn't be outer. Basically, the problem is that you can't have two columns that are both the tippy top and also the outer ones. So which, one, which, which word do you sacrifice? According to Rav, you sacrifice the word tippy top, because you say the very top barrels of each of the outer columns. columns, and then the second from the top of each of the outer columns. According to Shmuel, you do the very top so, and therefore you're sacrificing the word elionot because it's not really the very top only, it's the very top and the one underneath it. But you're not sacrificing an outer because it's only the outer columns that you're looking at. According to Shmuel, you sacrifice the word outer because you have to be specific about the word top. So therefore you do the tippy top barrel of from A to Z or if you want to call it A1 to Z1 all the way across and then the very tippy top barrel from A2 all the way down to Z2 on the second column in. So you're, what is it coming to exclude when it says chitzona? It's coming to include anything further in than that. You don't have to go to, to A3 through Z3. Okay? Rabbi Chia Tanei Rav. Rabbi Chia taught according to Rav. Uvechulot 
Tanu Kevate de Shmuel, Velchita Kevate de Shmuel. Talachafal of Shmuel, according to this, because all of the Tanaim, except for Rabbi Chia, held like Shmuel. Now, interesting, it's, interestingly, it's a Machloket Rishonim, and most of the Rishonim actually hold like Rav, not like Shmuel, even though this Gemara here says that the Hilchita Kishmuel, that Talachafal Shmuel, most of the Rishonim do not hold. Like Rav, so, so I'm sorry, do not hold like Shmuel. So clearly they didn't have this line in their Gemara of the Hilcheta Kivate de Shmuel that the law follows Shmuel. Most of the poskim hold that we, that in a case of a wine cellar, we check the very tippy top outer, um, the outer columns, the very top barrel of each of those columns, A through Z, and then the second from the top barrel from A through Z all the way across. We don't go to the next layer in of barrels, like Shmuel says, we follow Rav, according to most of the poskim. And again, this is, means where do you have to check for chametz? You don't have to check all the way inside the cube of these stacks of barrels where nobody ever goes. Um, but there's a machloket between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, where you have to check. And then a machloket of the Amoraim, what did Beit Shammai mean? And what did Beit Hillel mean?